The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Moultrie Mobile. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. I'm happy to have Steve Shirk on the line. Steve is, of course, a recurring guest for us. He's out of the uh, great state of Pennsylvania. He uh, manages Shirk's Guide Service that takes individuals out in the hunting season in Pennsylvania on public land and gets it done. Steve's going to give us a unique story today about a buck. I'll just call it the no-name buck. He's going to break down this specific hunt. This is a deer that he killed, and uh, he's got a little history with this deer, and so we're going to get into kind of his process, his techniques, and how he gets it done. So, uh, Steve, uh, welcome to the show. Can you, can you hear me? Yep. No, thanks a lot for having me once again, but I'm looking forward to it. Good, good. All right, so, you know, you had a pretty successful season. I know you killed a deer in New York and Pennsylvania. We're going to focus mm-hmm. on the Pennsylvania deer specifically. You've got a little history with him. I know we don't have a name for the deer. We'll just call him the no-name buck. But going into this season, you know, you, you of course, hunt just as long, you know, as long with your clients are hunting. You kind of, you have a plan and a process to get them, you know, on a deer. But you also got to worry about your own goals. And, and obviously, yep. you're able to get it done. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your hunting success this year. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, being... Being a guide, it, it can be very difficult, you know, to try to find your own time to hunt and, you know, hunt the way that you want. Uh, it's getting a little bit easier for me because I'm getting, like, a lot of repeat clients. And, you know, when clients keep coming back, it they get easier to guide because you, it's, you know, you're not – it's not so much hands-on guiding, you know, after they keep coming back. So I think things are opening up for me a little bit, um, you know, as far as – being able to, you know, I'm not trying to sound selfish or anything, but being able to do more hunting myself and, you know, hunt the way I like. Usually what happens is, uh, you know, if, if I'm super busy guiding, a lot of times I don't get to sit or hunt in a particular spot that I really want to because, you know, by the time I get everyone situated, it's just like, okay, what's the nearest stand I can jump in? But things are definitely, you know, they seem to be getting better for me when, you get a lot of people that just keep coming back and, uh, you know, it went and they just kind of, you can almost explain what to do and where to go. Yeah. So that knowing, knowing that this year, I kind of wanted to go at a little bit different level in my hunting. I started hunting like individual deer a little bit more just because once again, like I said, I knew that I felt like that I, I was able to do that. And I've always kind of shied away also from hunting individual deer at certain times of the year just because you know in the big woods and especially getting closer to rut 
their their range just gets to be so unpredictable. But I don't know. It was just just kind of one of those things. Like you, as a hunter, a lot of us are always striving to get to a different level. So that's just kind of what I did this year. And uh, that deer in particular, it wasn't you know my number one buck, but probably in my top five. So uh, that it was really cool to you know be able to go into a stand with a certain deer on my mind and hopes to kill and, you know, get it done. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So I like the, a little bit of the background is, you know, you've got a lot of deer to go after. You've get a little bit more time yep. because of this client base that you're working with, but now you're, you're getting to be a little more selfish and focus on things that, <laughs> that you have interest in. I also yeah. think there's another piece of you that's probably, it probably echoes with me as well as, I am not, I'm definitely diehard and I latch on to individual deer. I don't have a lot of big deer to hunt anyhow. I may have a deer or maybe two a season that I'm interested in, but you've achieved a lot of success over the years. So like, you know, if you didn't accomplish a goal, you know, of killing one of these deer, you're probably okay with it. And it's okay not to have that level of success. You know, I think that's one thing you and I could probably echo back and forth. It's okay if it didn't happen this year. It so did happen, but you know, the reality of it, if it doesn't, you know, you're not going to be banging your head against the wall. So this particular deer, and like you said, maybe not the top, but definitely, you know, it, I, I saw the buck. It's, it's an incredible deer. What, let, let's, let's try to peel back. Let's go back in time. Let's, let's think yeah. about when you first had information on the deer, and then let's walk it up to the kill, and then specifics, time of year, all that kind of stuff that played in your decision on when to go after that deer. And it may have been, yeah. may have been a circumstance of, you know, your client, if you had some freedom with clients, or, you know, you, you, you just, it was the time and place, and, you know, it worked out that way. So let, let's just yeah. go back in time a little bit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we it was last year is when I'm 100% sure, you know, that I knew of the deer. Going back through, you know, two, three, four years of photos, I think I might have had pictures of them even, you know, as, you know, one- and two-year-olds, but I, I can't quite be sure. You know, sometimes at a real young age, it's hard to identify a deer from then as he's, you know, because his antlers are developing more and more, especially deer might be a spike or a four point his first year. So, you know, I definitely had at least a year of history with him. And then, you know, last year, though, the only times we got pictures of him were during the rut. And that kind of, you know, that bothers me a little bit when I'm targeting a specific deer, just because in the rut, you know, their range is expanding so much that I don't know, does this deer live in this area or does he live two, three miles away, you know, is that his main core area there or not? So I wasn't going into this year, you know, super confident in, uh, in hunting him, but it was a deer that I even, you know, throughout the postseason and, uh, you know, summer scouting, especially with the cameras, I was putting some cameras out because I felt last year that he, you know, I could tell he's probably just a three-year-old, but he looked like he had a ton of potential. And I see a lot of deer here from three to four, actually, in the big woods is when I often see the biggest jump. Um, a lot of our deer don't get much bigger after four just because I think it's, you know, there's some nutrition issues in areas and, you know, they just don't have the their year-round food sources like, you know, maybe farmland deer and other places. But, you know, just not to top jump on that topic, but getting back to it, I once again, I knew it was a deer that I wanted to keep an eye on. And this summer I was able to put some cameras out and actually about, about a mile, mile and a half 
from where we were getting him last year during the rut is where I was finding him in the summer. And then that was kind of like a, you know, a light bulb went off, even though some deer will shift and have a summer and fall range. I just felt like I was on to something because I finally was getting more consistent consistency of the deer throughout the summer. And actually, you know, luckily that carried right through the fall. I had that deer on camera from summer right up, you know, until right when I shot him. And I think the, you know, clustering and spreading those cameras out was a big key to really learn where that deer was hanging. And I probably shot him right before a time when uh, his range was going to start to expand. So I think I hit him at the right time. All right, let's let's back it up. So the yep. summer the, the summer bits of data, obviously that gives you some idea of where they're locating. How yep. how did you collect that data? How did you pin, is an area you typically evaluate for the summertime? How, how did that work? It, it is, but it isn't. You know, there's so many places here that that I hunt. Like, I can't even cover cover all the areas all the time. Right. But uh, I knew a lot about the area. I've hunted it many, many times. And you know, one one thing though, I want to bring up is this is where a lot of people, especially big woods hunters, you know, they get confused and they'll get you can get pictures of deer quite easily in the summer but then as that transition goes from summer to fall there's usually a time period when most people think that what happened is your deer that disappeared has actually moved off you know from what they call this you know the summer to fall shift and really some deer do that i see here but the majority of the deer that people think have disappeared and moved on actually are still living in that same area that they were in the summer it's just they move completely different, I find, from, you know, say, like, late September, almost to mid-October. They, they really shrink up their home range and their core area, and they're mainly nocturnal. Uh, all, almost all the daytime activities generally inside thick cover. So if most people would have thought that that deer was long gone, but I was able to know the area well. And even though I really didn't hunt him, I didn't hunt him at all until, until November, but I was, I was able to just stay on him knowing that, okay, even though he's not popping up on the cameras every week, I knew that he was living in there just because it had the cover. It had, it had, you know, some good bedding areas that had everything that deer needed. And occasionally he would pop up on camera. And I, I really just think that my senses were a big deal of, of knowing how to stay on that deer the whole time. Yeah. So, so back to the summer bits of information and transitioning to kind of the fall time, you know, you yep. talked, you talked quickly about clustering cameras and putting cameras obviously in groups to collect data. So you're, yep. you're, you're getting a little bit more Intel, how they move in and out of area. I mean, what's the theory behind clustering cameras in, in your, and when you say cluster, uh, a cluster could mean they're within a hundred yards of each other, 50 feet exactly. of each other. What's, what's, what's the concept there? Because what you'll find is this is more with bucks and mature bucks than, you know, than does. So what I find is a lot of bucks, and this is mainly during that time period that, you know, what they, some people might even call the October law a, a mature buck will not hit. Like when he goes from point A to point B, a lot of times that time of year, he almost has selected designated routes. Like, He's not 
he's not walking like he is in the summer or in the rut. You know, they're mainly feed-to-bed oriented at that time of year. He's not really interested in a whole lot of other things. So if you're not clustering cameras, like you might have a thicket, clear-cut or something, and you might have 10 cameras, some in it, or maybe, you know, several around the perimeter, I can't tell you how many times I'll only get a deer on one or two of those cameras, but consistently, because he's got special routes that he's using at that time of year. He doesn't, he's not ranging, he's not looking for does, and they get they just get extremely hard to locate at that time of year. But when you cluster those cameras, that's how you can find, you know, those specific routes that a deer is using. If you're just putting, you know, a camera here, a camera there, you know, when, when that range shrinks up, you're going to think that deer is gone and really he's there, but he's just really moving in, you know, tighter paths. Steve, this particular deer, did he hang out with a bachelor group or was he solo? I never had him with another buck, at least from what I saw in the summer. And I'm not saying I, I didn't get like hundreds of pictures of him. I got, you know, four or five rounds of him throughout the summer, um, mainly mainly on a uh, just a particular licking branch, you know, that he was occasionally hitting. But he just, even even last year, although it was during the rut, in my, in my experience, I think he was a loner and you know, not all deer do batch up with other bucks. Yeah. I think one of the pieces of this is interesting is you just said that you got them on a licky branch. So obviously for the listenership, you know, deer use licking branches all the time, right? They're a social creature and they're excreting scent all the time. It's not just during a certain part of the season. And then part two of that is, you know, thinking about routes and being a little bit more certain with, you know, your camera setups and then collecting that data and then thinking about, you know, how you can pinch deer down to collect that data. Yep. Even in your settings, Steve, are you able to kind of isolate a little bit their travel routes? I mean, I know guys in public land that have moved timber around, not actually cut timber, but moved branching mm-hmm. around just to funnel them a little bit more. Do anything like that? I never really have done anything like that because being on where, you know, where I'm at, like you're not even allowed to cut trees down. You got to be careful even what you cut for shooting lanes. Sure. So, you know, that's kind of difficult, but just knowing, knowing areas very thoroughly, even though, you know, I didn't hunt this year, like the year prior, I've hunted this area in the past. I've killed, you know, a couple different deer up in there throughout the years. So I really know, I, I knew a lot about how I felt the buck bedding was, you know, I, I also I knew a lot about how the deer, even does, use that area. And it was, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead, but it was actually what the does were doing is how I killed that buck. So just knowing the area really thoroughly is, is really what did it for me. I, I didn't, the only reason why I didn't hunt that deer at all throughout the earlier part of the season was there was a bigger deer that I spent most of the season hunting. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's how that goes. Yeah, no. So, again, this is deer that's a little more isolated. And obviously one thing to look at when you're evaluating, and some people, you know, again, this is a consideration that you may want to make, is if you have your trail cameras on video mode, you can understand a little bit more about how the deer flows through certain areas and, and pick up a little bit more on their habits. In some cases, yep. what I've found, and maybe you you can relate to this, is, these individual personalities that these deer have, how they interact socially with other animals in the location, kind of shows a little bit more like, I don't know if this is 
this is the correct term, but they're temperamental personalities. I notice yeah. isolated, like singular deer, their ability to tolerate things seems to be a lot lower. If I'm going to oh, go yeah. and tack a deer, I'm really going to have a good plan to get after that deer to get close to them because it's a one and done scenario, especially in these smaller properties that, that I'm working on. You know, you might be able to relate to that or not, but I've seen that you've get you really get like one chance. And again, if it's the only deer you have to kill, if you blow that chance, I mean, season's over. And I've had seasons yep. like that where I've blown it. I've went after the deer and, uh, you know, I, I blew them out of the country and, and a neighbor shot them just because of, you know, po- a poor selection decision on a day to go after a deer or, you know, terrain benefits or just knowing how to hunt that deer better. So, yeah, I've dealt with that issue and, and probably something you've dealt with as well. Oh, yeah. I guess what, I, what I'm going to bring up is like I didn't, I, you know, once again, I didn't hunt that deer at all early season because mo- the majority of my season I was hunting one to two other deer. But things started to die off. Like the reason why I, I started to hunt that buck was I had a better feeling, you know, I shot him on November 6th, but I had a better feeling of uh, knowing I was in some more controlled doe bedding and this year we didn't have any acorns or any food sources and it was hard to get on concentrations of does, but I knew where that, you know, where that buck was living and I knew that there was a good pocket of does up there. And so I felt like, okay, generally what happens is a a buck, especially the, which I believe he was the dominant buck in the area. Generally he will seek out the first does like closest to, you know, his core area. And I think that's definitely what happened. They all use the same bedding area, but generally the mature buck bedding is on the kind of, which would actually be like what they would call leeward side. He will, he beds or the buck bedding is kind of on the east side of this hill, but in, in, in the thicker cover and the does bed, you know, looking, looking, I would say it would be looking west. So I knew I was extremely confident that this was a deer that I could go in and kill during a, maybe that first week of November time frame because I knew there was about five or six does that were, that were hanging in this particular spot. And that's pretty much, you know, what I, what I feel like, you know, led me on to killing that deer is the other deer that I was hunting. It was just like once the rut did come, the does were so scattered and spread out. I felt like I was hunting a needle in a haystack at that time. What, what was the distance between his summer range and the area where you killed him? How far away was that? Honestly, it was all on the same ridge. Okay, so um, that that's a good that's a good story for a lot of people to hear. And yep. you you already broadcasted that earlier. Is it could be an evolution in the way they move. It also maybe they have preferences. By the way, something I'll talk about in a different podcast is changing a deer's core area you can absolutely do it on private land or land that you lease that you have the ability to work in some cases naturally they have preferences to stay in those areas i think if i put a percentage of this and i'm making numbers up so anybody don't don't take this for gospel Mm -hmm. i would say 60 percent of the deer that i see and even maybe even a higher percentage that do not change in the situation i'm in and i'm i mix forest ag they don't change very much their summer and fall ranges. So yep. about 60% of the, I'm talking 60% of the bucks 
I would say yep. 80% of the does or greater don't change those ranges at all. Assuming the and food sources right, and that's huge for the rut. So when you're designing your property, think about those metrics a little bit. I'm I'm making up numbers. You should keep count of that on your property. How many deer stay and how many deer go? That immigration number is huge. Is showing you know the quality of the property that you have. So Steve, I'll get off my soapbox. Let's get back yeah, into no, the hunt. <laughs> yeah, let me. I'll bring something up too that I think is important about this deer is. So I talked about getting him on a particular licking branch through the summer and early fall. I had that buck from July to, I want to say, early to mid-September on this one particular licking branch. And that was like the main spot I would get pictures of him. You know, only, not not like every week, but just occasionally throughout the summer and early fall. But then he completely disappears. And that's the time when people think he's gone, he's moved miles away. When I know that this buck, was still on the same ridge but when especially you know right about the time he sheds his velvet he becomes a completely different animal he will go into completely different mode that when they get way more like cautious they get way more nocturnal they spend you know a lot more time in cover so what had happened is that buck went you know shifted to mainly just living on top of this ridge and you know just in a thick area you know, other than maybe at night coming out and, you know, going down to the stream to get a drink, it's very hard to even get pictures of a deer, you know, like I said, during that time frame. But what's what's unique, and this happens a lot, is about, I want to say, is, I think October 21st, he started showing up again on that same licking branch he was using during the summer. And what it is, is he's all of a sudden getting out of that October lull, you know, I keep bringing up type behavior to where now he's getting into that rut behavior, which he's starting to spread out and move more. But Mm -hmm. all the time from summer to right up to where I, when I shot that and killed that deer, that deer lived on that same ridge, except just during that one period of time is when he really shrunk his movements up. So, you know, the, the main point is, is, uh, 80 or 90 percent of these bucks that people think have disappeared they haven't disappeared from summer to fall right that's that's a good great point great point so they went from and even in this case kind of isolating themselves you know yep. for, for a particular purpose and i almost think there's an energy building exercise that's going on with a lot of these deer i think science doesn't necessarily prove that out because i don't think they've tested that but all these yep. lulling philosophies that are going on is deer are building up their physiology their physique for the next 100%. event, right? It's this breeding cycle that they're going into. And like you yep. brought up a point where they're becoming more social and almost scouting, not their competition, but scouting their environment to figure out what deer are in what areas or what deer they, yep. could, they could possibly breed or in those other areas. And I think it, it kind of all plays into this web of the social aspect that I don't even think the science folks understand fully. Deer disperse scent, they socially interact. We want more of that on the landscape. And of course, you know, it's not necessarily the licking branch that does it all. It's a place Mm -hmm. where deer are going to congregate. And obviously you took advantage of that. I'm interested in hearing now about how you killed this deer because of course, you know, you said November 7th. uh, That's a key. November 6th. Oh, November November 6th. Okay, so an early November hunt. You know, they're definitely, the the breeding cycle has already started. How did the hunt go down? Okay, so I went in, it would be November, let's see, November 4th, I checked the camera. 
this isn't the camera where I had them most of the time. This was a spot where I knew I was more around concentrated does because I, once again, I knew that this was the main pocket of does in a certain area. And most likely knowing he was the dominant deer, this is a spot he was going to be checking frequently. And uh, so I went in November 4th. He started showing up. I saw, you know, I had a scrape there that mainly just does were hitting. I never had a mature buck on this camera. I put it out about October 1st. I never had a mature buck even at night on this camera till I want to say about October 25th. And it was pretty much all night. But he, I think he was on there the 27th. And all he's doing is coming through this area to see, okay, are the does here? You know, it's about that period of time when bucks do that. I want to say he came in two times late October from then till Halloween, all at night. On the camera, he showed up in the daylight, I think, November 1st and November 4th. So I saw a pattern there, and it was all just at a scrape. The does were pounding the scrape, too, which I think think what you'll find and this is really key for rut hunting is when you have a lot of doe activity at a scrape even though does will kind of work licking branches year-round i believe when does are getting close to be wanting to be bred or when their cycle is going to come in i think they get real scrape active yes and i've seen this before yes i have they they yeah they was really there's a couple adult does that were really pounding the scrape you could see pictures of them peeing in it. I'm like, okay, things are about to happen here real quick. And knowing that buck had already shown up three times in like about a week span, and now he, he went from night to daytime, I was like, I got to get in here. So I hunted it October 5th, didn't see the buck, but I saw, I did see five bucks that said I sat from like noon till dark. And normally I don't do all day sits, but my plan was I'm hunting an individual deer here. I want to hunt this deer. And I knew that this was probably the most likely spot I could kill him. I said, the next day I said, I'm going to sit here all day, no matter what I'm, I'm putting all, all my money on this deer for these next few days. I'm just going to hunt this one spot. Well, lo and behold, I think at that time of year, it's getting daylight about seven or something like that. You know, right before I, I can't remember if the clock's changed then or not, but I know it hadn't been daylight for more than an hour or two, and he uh, he showed up at 8 o'clock heading right for that scrape, and I shot him. One other thing, too, I'll, I'll bring up, which was another big key, is I'm a big fan of blind running, and that's really how I got that deer to come in. I, I just did a series of blind grunts, and about 100 yards away, I could hear a small sapling just, like, thrashing. And that was him. And actually, you know, to this day, he still has those shavings on his antlers. I'm really <laughs> hoping that I can save that because I thought that's pretty cool. But it was, even though I think he was probably passing through, but I think my blind running, because that's what he, when he came in ears back all pissed off. So I know he definitely heard me and he was trying to circle downwind. But I really think the blind running was a huge added draw to getting that deer to come in. Just to back it up, so you you hunted him November fifth. I think you might have yep. just said October fifth, but November fifth. Yeah, November fifth. Right. Sorry. So afternoon hunt, and then you plan on sitting all the next day, and you shot him at what, what approximately what time? Eight o'clock. All right. And before you got a shot at him, you blind grunted, 
And how yep. long after the blind grunt did that deer show up? Five minutes. Five minutes when I could hear about 100 yards away, I could hear a buck rubbing. And that's generally when a buck comes into your blind grunting, the majority of the time he will start scraping and rubbing his way to you, especially if it's a dominant deer in the area. Because he knew, I really think especially blind grunting was really key in this spot because this is where the does were hanging. And a mature deer, when he knows that his does are hanging there and he hears another buck in that area, he's nine out of ten times is going to come right into that because he doesn't want anyone else in there. If I if I can take you back, Steve, you said you had data on November first and the fourth, and those are daylight activity. Daytime, yep, daytime data. What did you What did you see in that area? Was Was he alone? Was with a with a doe? Was he cycling off a doe? What What did you see that made you Um, other than just daylight? The nighttime pictures, it just seemed like he was coming through. The does The does mainly were hitting the scrape in the day, but he, he still hadn't broke out of that somewhat nocturnal phase i it was up here it was late this year like normally late october i see a ton of daytime mature buck activity i didn't hardly at all this year but at night you know i didn't really see anything but him probably just getting ready he knows it's about it's almost time and i think he was just checking to see what the girls were doing in that area but then when he started to be daylight active it seemed like he was starting to get more interested in when the does were using that area. And it was, even though I shot him at eight in the morning, which I think once again was due to my blind grunting, I think he knew that cause it was right on the edge of a doe bedding area. The pictures were 10 to noon. That's when, so I think he was trying to dial in on when the does were coming in there to bed. And generally I think the does were just like him. They would, they would work that, that scrape just just outside of their bedding area and then head to bed. I see that a lot of times with deer. But I think that's what he was doing is he was trying to pattern the does and, you know, what he wanted to know when they were showing up there. And, you know, and I think that was the key to killing them. So was this on top of a ridge line where you were positioned? Exactly. Okay. Top of the ridge line, there's probably some, I'm assuming, thick adjacent cover where you're saying their bedding areas are? Okay. Yep, the ridge the ridge runs north and south. There's cover all over the top of the ridge, and there's kind of like it's a little bit humpy. There's a bunch of you know small elevation drops that just makes it even more prime for bedding because even does most deer like to bed near some kind of an elevation drop in you know in the mountains. Absolutely. So yeah, so it, it's just a prime bedding spot. But the bucks get the leeward side, and the does tend to take, you know, whatever is left over, and, and they bed more, like I said, on the west-facing side. Just because I once I always believe that mature bucks always get the best of everything. So, But how the bucks and does kind of use the same area, but it's a big area. We're talking like, you know, a quarter mile across or whatever. So there's, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of room here. That made it. That's just another reason why, like I said, I knew the buck bedding was not real far from me. And I knew that, once again, that when the rut really does finally come in, that buck is going to be after that main group of does closest to his core area and especially his bedding area. 
Yeah, and and so the scraping activity, this the, the and I, scraping to me is completely social. So that social activity yep. that you're experiencing, where was that in relationship to their stand? Obviously, it was close enough uh, that you could probably see it. But where was it? Yep. You know, was it was it on a a cleared out logging trail? Was there was it a, kind of on a terrain slump or a contour bench? Yep. What, what was like? What was that yep. location like? The, the scrape is at the head of a draw, or some people might call it a ravine. It is a really good terrain feature. It's also right on the, the edge of the cover. And what generally happens here, and it, it makes it a really good rut spot, is the bucks, they, bucks love to cruise around the edge of doe bedding, you know, during, during the rut. And it's just a perfect pinch point there, too, because even though it's a long ridge, this ravine comes up through it and it narrows the ridge up to mm-hmm. where it makes when these bucks are cruising the side of this ridge and around the thicker cover, it pinches them to come up the ridge more because they don't want to cross through the steeper ravine. They cross right around the head of it. And right at the head of it is where this community scrape is. And even the does, you know, cause it's super close to doe bedding, the does hit it. It's just, you know, it's just a prime spot. I set up about 30 yards downwind of it you know, or up, I guess you would say, yeah, no, downwind yeah, of it. Yeah, so sure. that when, yeah. So when they would come, you know, hopefully not what I normally try to do, like some people like to get real tight to a scrape, but I tend to find that a lot of bucks will first come in 10, 20, 30 yards downwind of a scrape, smell it and then check it. So I, I'd like to a lot of times back off 30 to 40 yards just to give myself some breathing room or whatever. But I would set up, you know, about 30 yards from the scrape. And I think the buck would have likely probably hit it, but because he'd heard me blind running, um, I think he was more interested in seeing who was in his area first. And once again, that's really what he came into. Yeah. Yeah. He was more in dominance mode than he was. And again, being a little bit passive territorial, they're, they're going to obviously want to know socially what's going on. And of course, in this case, he has got his harem of does in some general location in that area. And he doesn't want to yep. lose out on that opportunity. So, you know, they're, they're, they're not much different from humans to some degree. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, this is a, this is a great story. I mean, to me, you know, I got a lot out of this. There's a ton of bits of data here. You know, it's almost yep. nice. I, I wish we could physically show everybody what you're dealing with, but I think, I think you explained it really well. Great. And, and and I think, I think the listenership will, will kind of appreciate kind of all these setup features that made this happen. Intel looking at the topography, you know, relationship to usage, you know, the social aspect of this, you know, and of course, you know, time and place. I mean, it all boils down to time and place and yep. you knew when to hunt it because of the camera data. Yep. And then you had the spot already pre-selected based upon the social activity and, and realistically put the two and two together. And it, it actually was probably pretty easy for you, you know, <laughs> you, could, you could kind of, I don't, yeah, if easy is the word. It, it worked out easy. Normally, normally it's, this sounds way better than what it usually is. Like five out of 10 times you hunt something like this, it doesn't work out, but that's just <laughs> hunting is a, you are, you're always hunting small odds, but 
greater than real small, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Shifting probabilities, <laughs> right? That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I was trying to make you sound really good. <laughs> okay, you know, Steve, anything else you want to add to this? I, I, I love this type of stuff. You know, you're the tactics guy in our podcast, so anything else you want to add to the listenership kind of gone past or use their 30-minute threshold? So <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, no, I think with this, this is one of those things, though, if we're telling the story, I think you want to tell thoroughly and not miss out on anything. Uh, I just, you know, just kind of to round it up, I think the biggest key here was, and you brought it up a little bit, was was a timing thing. Like, even though I wouldn't, I wouldn't have hunted this buck the same way at any other period of year, but I knew the time of year in relation to the area and what, what was going to happen there in the rut. Like, I also think that this spot would have probably only been good the first week or two of the rut because I knew there was other, there's other concentrated buck bedding spread out in there. And what I, what I generally see is it seems like if you're, if you're on does that are fairly close to, you know, the main core area of bucks, it seems like that is generally just a good early rut spot. Then, you know, as long as those does come into heat early, then it seems like after that, those spots can die off. And I left the camera there, you know, it's still there actually. And that's exactly what the camera showed me was it was good early November up till about the 10th. And it seemed like the breeding was done and then it, it was those bucks needed to move off. So just knowing all those things, I felt like I just, I have to come in here at the right time. As soon as the rut really starts, then it was going to be done. So just knowing, knowing those little details and knowing how to, to factor in the timing of what the deer are doing in a particular area, I think is very important. Yeah, I think that's great. And a point that we hit on in another podcast previous to this, it's a very similar type discussion with one of the guys that does implementation work. So Steve, mm-hmm. thanks for the time. I appreciate you breaking down, you know, this, this uh, story in the no name buck and, you know, hopefully uh, we'll have more tactics and antics to, to go on uh, later on but uh thanks for the time today i appreciate it absolutely bud my pleasure looking forward to the next time all right talk again soon see ya yep bye-bye maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes for more information on how john teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt check out whitetaillandscapes.com